If you love what you're doing, then you are going to be successful at it or you're going to get the best out of yourself. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, and welcome to episode 109 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who loves what they do, or do they? Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash map and like always we're getting today underway with a review if you ride or race a bike you need to listen in five stars by bcs 909 from the u.s this is probably the best cycling related podcast out there for the average guy training and racing bikes damien does an excellent job of explaining important ideas about training and racing that come into the cycling community without ever being preachy i really appreciate that thanks damien keep up the good work thank you very much for writing that review i try to stay down the middle sometimes things bug me and i don't but definitely we're all in this together and if you do like the show i would love a review on itunes or stitcher because five stars makes me go Well, not quite, but thank you very, very much. Now, the performance probe this week, probe number one, functional overreaching, the key to peak performance during the taper, question mark. It's a study that is looking at whether performance supercompensation during taper is maximized in elite endurance athletes after experiencing overreaching during an overload training period. This would be where you have that last big push before your A race, either through a training camp or just squeezing out the maximum amount of training load out of yourself and your time available before going into a taper. 33 trained male triathletes were assigned to either an overload training group or normal training groups during eight weeks where cycling performance and maximal oxygen uptake vo2 max were measured after one week of moderate training and three week period of overload training and then each week during a four week taper so the results 11 out of the 23 subjects from the overload training group were diagnosed as functionally overreached After the overload period, what does this mean? It means they decreased performance while also having high perceived fatigue. Whereas the 12 other subjects were only acutely fatigued and they experienced no decrease in performance. According to qualitative statistical analysis, the 12 subjects that were acutely fatigued demonstrated a small to large greater peak performance supercompensation than the functionally overreached group and greater than the normal training group. So the VO2 max increased significantly from baseline at peak performance only in the normal training and acutely fatigued groups. Of the peak performances, 60%, 83%, and 73% occurred within the first two weeks of taper in normal training, acutely fatigued, and the overreached groups respectively. Adding to this, there were 10 
cases of infection that were reported during the study with higher prevalence in the functionally overreached group, 70%, than that in the acutely fatigued group, 20%, and 10% in the normal training group. So the study's conclusion showed that, number one, greater gains in performance and VO2 max can be achieved when higher training load is prescribed before the taper, but not when functionally overreached. Number two, peak performance is not delayed during taper when heavy training loads are completely immediately prior. And number three, functionally overreaching provides higher risk for training maladaption, including increased infection risks. So the takeaways for you If you're going to add a late overload period before a taper period, be careful because in this study, 50% of the overload training group were functionally overreached afterwards and 70% of those riders became sick. So you've got to know that there is a risk involved with ramping up the load and yes, it was statistically shown to give you a greater peak performance if you did overload you have to make sure you're watching recovery, hygiene, and specifically the training load that you're doing while monitoring your body, mood, and emotions. Because as soon as you become functionally overreached, reminder that is a decreased performance when you have a high perceived fatigue. I don't see any way of salvaging the taper without losing the performance gain, and you would actually be worse off than if you just trained normally. Probe number two, how Eric Marcotte won the US Pro Road Championships part two. You thought I forgot about it, didn't you? I mentioned part one a few weeks back and I said it was going to be the next week, but I've dragged it out just a little bit longer. But where we left off last time, the situation was as follows. Eric had placed himself in a strategic position heading out in the early laps with four climbs up Lookout Mountain left and at this point of the race the break has a gap of around five minutes and at only 49 minutes the peloton had to show its hand and what kind of pressure will they want to put on the break because too much and the teams working are burning riders too fast and have no assets left to leverage tactics later in the race or too little and the gap continues to run out eventually becoming unreachable Meanwhile, the brake needs to make decisions as well. How much to push the limit of the peloton's patience? If the time gap goes too high, it could spark an intense reaction. If the gap comes too low, then riders could try and bridge across, and this will likely bring everybody back together. So... In the end, the peloton gave five minutes to the break, and much of this gap came from the first descent of Lookout Mountain, which was 36 minutes into the break, which was quite early on. And now we move into the middle of the race, and what played out next was the Lookout Mountain circuits was over half of the volume of the race at around two and a half hours and around 2,600 kilojoules. So this is what the author is classing as the middle of the race. And throughout this two and a half hours of racing, Eric stayed true to the strategy laid out by Team SmartShop. He kept calm, he rode within himself, and he relied on his team, his director, and his training. And Team Smart Shop had two riders in the break to make catching the breakaway difficult, if not impossible. So it was imperative that Eric stay focused on riding conservatively so that he could race for the win later on in the day. And the reasons for the eventual success of the breakaway are multi-layered, and we will discuss a few major ones here. First, 
The climb up Lookout Mountain did not play a decisive role in deciding the winner of the race, but it did show its potential to do so. Second, the loss of riders such as Taylor Finney, Danny Summerhill and others to crashes changed the outcome of the race, but to what end, we will never know. And third, the weather conditions did start to negatively influence the motivation of the peloton, and many times they slowed down to a crawl as no team or rider would take control of the race. So let's move into the finale of the race, where all the action happened. And as the race began its fourth and final circuit up Lookout Mountain, the peloton was whittled down to a handful of riders. Coupled with the conditions of the day, the race advantage was tipped towards the favour of the brake. And the question is, will the brake have enough horsepower to win, or will it be the later rivals that will spoil the party? In the final trip up Lookout Mountain, fitness and freshness, relatively speaking, become immediately evident. And the willingness of Eric to stay patient and allow the race to happen kept him fresh enough to be effective and even turn out a 1000 kilojoule hour in the last hour of racing the final climb was the hardest of the day for Eric and it was identical pretty much to the output from the first climb at around 388 watts normalized The group actually gapped Eric on this final climb, but he made it back on as he made a tactical decision not to dig too deep and chase at threshold power minus 10%. When the lead group of 12 consolidated, there were three smart shop riders and they were definitely in the driver's seat for the race and they executed a tactically perfect race. The ensuing move and counter moves were fierce and with a small group, everyone has to respond to everything. Five hour energy could be in fact, Eric did a little over nine minutes of effort at greater than 500 watts during this part of the race, and in the final 20 minutes, Eric's normalized power was 372 watts, and his winning sprint peaked at 650 watts. Pretty cool insight into how the race played out from the coach of Eric Marcotte. Congratulations again, Eric. It will be cool watching you wear those stars and stripes with pride because there was not only lady luck on your side, but also smart teamwork and a lot of smarts, tactics and well-thought-out conservation coming from yourself. Get back up there, get back up there. Come on, manage this three and a quarter. boy. Here we go, remember to give me that hand signal when you have about 30 seconds left. Great job, keep pushing, keep pushing. Come on, give us everything you have in three and a quarter. He's got about 30 seconds left. Okay. Got about 30 seconds, come on. Give me 30 more seconds, 30 more seconds. Right now we have a time point. Give us 30 more seconds. Come on, Jaden. Come on, Jaden. This is where it's at. This is where you get your biggest numbers. Come on, Jaden. 20 seconds. Give me 20 more seconds, Jaden. Come on now. Come on now. Come on now. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Come on. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Let's go, Jaden. Come on now. Come on. 10 seconds. 10 seconds. You got it in you. Go as long as you can. 10 seconds. 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Five seconds. Come on, Jaden. Go as long as you can. Go as long as you can. Come on, come on, come on. That's my time point if you got to go. 
Keep going. All right, all right, that's it. Okay, great job. Having a good match has to require someone to maybe shout at you in the last couple of minutes. That's Rick Stern, performance director and senior coach at RST Sport, talking about shouting at riders in the last couple of minutes of a test. It seems pretty extreme from an outsider's perspective, unless you're at the footy, I guess. But we are talking about testing today, and it's a necessary evil for athletes, and super exciting as a coach. But there is definitely one thing you can't get around. Tests hurt. They hurt when you're fit, and they hurt when you're unfit. But it's the numbers they produce which make it all worthwhile. So what does make a good test a reliable measure for setting training zones and measuring progress? One that can consistently elicit the best results from an athlete whenever tested. And it's not hard to convince an athlete to do a test, but it's hard to get the best result out of every athlete every single time. If you have heard me talk about testing in the past, you will know that I test my athletes with an all-out 20-minute protocol to find out their FTP. And an all-out test definitely has its drawbacks, though. Things like going too deep in the early part of a season to not being able to perform at max capacity every time. If you do a bit more digging into different scientific performance tests, you will come across ramp tests, and these traditionally test VO2 max, lactate, and MAP, which you may be familiar with VO2 max and lactate, but you may not know MAP. MAP is just as useful as FTP for measuring progress and setting training zones, but what is MAP? And how is it calculated? Basically, it's an incremental test to exhaustion, starting from a fairly easy level, going up as hard as the athlete can go. So for your average third category rider or master's athlete uh, who's a male, they, they might start the test at, say, 100 watts and increase at a rate of 25 watts a minute, going up to a maximum of somewhere between, say, 350 and 450 watts for, say, a 70 kilo athlete. What we then do is at the end of the test, when they arrive at, say, 400 watts or whatever it is, we work out the average of the last, approximately the last minute of the test. It may not always be the last minute because some riders, they get to 400 watts and and then they start dropping off to maybe 390, 380, 370, and then they suddenly stop. And some riders just get to 400 watts or whatever their end point is and then just stop because that's as much as they can do. Uh, And so roughly the last minute, but not always the last minute, but always 60 seconds, the average is. And that's how we calculate the map. Rick has used MAP and MAP testing for his entire coaching career, which is 20 years or so. So I wanted to get the backstory on why he started using MAP testing. I did a degree in sports science and I think my first MAP test was 95 and I've done hundreds of them. I just grew up doing MAP testing as it were and I've just stuck with it. Historically within the United Kingdom, people did this sort of testing that they called it MAP testing or ramp test or VO2 max test. And these were the standard tests that people did who were cyclists and who wanted to test their fitness for sports scientists and get some sort of Uh, figure to look at to assess their fitness and so when I started coaching hadn't done a course in sports science at this point and so I just went along with the popular theory that people did map testing and that was the way that it was 
And I started to collect lots and lots of data in this manner. And then after a while, I might have thought that there were perhaps other ways to do testing, which we do use with some athletes. But I had such a large um, database of records for all these sorts of tests that had been done, of the map tests. I just thought, well, I can keep with it. People like doing them in as much as it only takes about 15 minutes to do a test. It's not an hour. Uh, you can recover from them relatively quickly and go and do some other training if you like. And and mentally, it's perhaps easier in some way for a lot of athletes because you've got um, uh, you're being paced, you're being told how much to do until you can't do any more. Whereas with say an FTP test, you're thinking, no. Oh, Today, is my fitness worth 270 watts in an FTP test, or is it worth 280, or am I going to fade, or what's going to happen? With the map testing, it's slightly easier because you're being paced, as it were. Personally, I did my first map or ramp test in 1994, and my last one at the Australian Institute of Sport in 2008. So... I know they have been around a while. What I didn't know, though, was how many variations there are. There's British Cycling and RICS protocol. What happened was, when I was at university, one of my lecturers was Peter Keane, who was Chris Boardman's coach uh, from the 1990s. And he developed a protocol for map testing that we've just basically continued to use. Uh, with a map test, the actual result for your final minute is very dependent upon the protocol that you use. Initially, Peter had used a, a 20 watt per minute ramp rate for elite males and a 15 watts per minute ramp rate for females. And then we added on a, a 25 watts per minute ramp rate for non-elite males. And it, that's just been the protocol that we've used ever since uh, well, you know, that I used since university with my professional coaching. The test itself is over in somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes. If you've started the test, it's, it's approximately the correct level for the athlete. If it's much less than 10 minutes, you've started it too high. And if it takes much longer than 15 minutes, you've started it way too low for the athlete. And that might require a, a, a follow-up test a, a few days later or a week later, depending on, on their training schedule. You get a, a, a better test that's between 10 and 15 minutes. But, yeah, there's lots of different protocols. Uh, uh, I know the Australian one's different, and the Canadian one is also different. Either way, protocol, you will get a different answer. So it's very protocol-dependent, and the zones that we use based on map based on the protocol that I use, that I suggest. And there are plenty of other protocols. For example, I've listed out all of the Australian Institute of Sports testing protocols, so check the episodes page where I have protocols for junior men and women, elite men and women, and non-elite men. It's also not just the ramping part that changes, warm-ups actually change as well. And there's another important thing to note here. The AIS actually splits their ramp test into two types, long-graded and short-graded. And you use long-graded if you want to know your blood lactate transition threshold. This is measuring your blood lactate levels at different wattages, or you use short-graded to measure your max capacity, but not heart rate and lactate. The protocol Rick uses is closer to the short-graded test, which makes perfect sense to me. I was curious, though, why Rick doesn't use that many protocols. It's just the way that, that um, the time was introduced to the 
the MAP testing, we had 15 watts per minute for women, 20 watts per minute for elite males, uh, and someone suggested 25 watts per minute for non-elite males. I haven't bothered separating out juniors or older riders into different categories. It's, so there's, there's just three different protocols that we use at RST, uh, depending on, on the person, females, elite males, and non-elite males. Cadence is a big part of the equation as well, and the AIS recommends riding between 90 and 105 RPMs for their tests. Does Rick worry about setting a specific cadence? No, no. Uh, You can use any cadence you like. You can be as fast as you want or as slow as you like. Um, What what I tend to find with some riders, it's quite interesting when when they do their map test, that they start off maybe at 100 revs a minute uh, when they're going at low power. And as they get up towards the top end as they're approaching map, some people's cadence drops off quite dramatically. And you'll see them grinding out the last minute at, say, 75 revs per minute. And I, I sit, sit here when I'm looking at the file afterwards thinking, crikey, how, how, how did they do that many watts at 75 revs or, or, or whatever? And you get to other athletes who are the opposite. that They'll start off at, say, 90 revs a minute at a fairly easy level. And as the power goes up, they'll increase their uh, their pedaling cadence. Uh, and you think, yeah, that seems normal. And, yeah, it just seems to be the way that people are. I, I don't stop the test if people drop below a certain level or, or start pedaling really fast. I just let them do the test as they want. I think I had one person pedaling really, really fast during the map test. And I was convinced that... Um, he would get a higher map if he slowed his cadence down a little. He was trying to pedal at something like 120 revs a minute the whole way through. And when we did retesting with a slightly lower cadence, around about 100, his map score was much was much better. But generally, no, we, we don't stop people. One thing that separates the map test from the FTP test is the brain space it might occupy. If you didn't have an ER-controlled trainer, then it seems like it would be so difficult to be able to keep up or calculate the actual wattages as you're going through the test. Because think about this, there's one recommendation to increase 5 watts every 12 seconds. There's no way I could probably do this right now sitting in front of you without struggling a little bit. So imagine throwing that on top of your body and mind slogging it out close to max. Which brings me to, is this test possible outdoors? Out on the road, you definitely have a lot of other things to think about, like keeping the bike upright and not getting hit by traffic. But the recommendation generally is out on the road to use watts per minute rather than anything less. So steps like 5 watts per 12 seconds are fine for indoors. But even Rick says... Even that's difficult to do inside unless you've got some sort of electronically controlled turbo trainer or or ergometer. And so, yes, that that would be the way that I would do it if, if... the athlete has access to that sort of trainer. You know, five watts every 12 seconds gives a nice smooth ramp or, or is it something like one watt every half a second or whatever. You know, anything to get a nice smooth ramp up would be um, fantastic. But so obviously on most people's regular turbo trainers, you can't do that sort of very fine control. It's just impossible. And outdoors, it's even worse. Uh, it's going to be a lot more jumpy than that. And so what we're doing is looking at an overall trend line. And, you know, I might say to someone, well, you know, you need to go out and do this map test up a hill, uh, find a long hill, 
uh, and try to increase at 25 watts per minute. And if he doesn't come out at exactly 25 watts a minute, it, it's not the end of the world. It's just a starting point for me to set training zones and get a rough idea on that person. Uh, and obviously, the more you can, can control the, uh, the test and make it reproducible, the better it is for, for assessing that person's fitness. But people have ups and downs when they try to do it outside, and you just got to make best use of, of whatever you can. It's not always possible to get it really smooth. I did find a study that compares indoor testing to outdoor testing, specifically related to map testing. It's called validation of a field test to determine the maximal aerobic power in triathletes and endurance cyclists. In 2007, Gonzalez Haro et al. conducted a study exploring whether a field-based test was a valid way to assess maximal aerobic power. Gonzalez Haro and his team found that an incremental test protocol assessing aerobic performance worked equally well in the lab and in the velodrome. That's a bit of a red flag for me because it still doesn't touch on the road as a viable place to test on. Because really, come on, a velodrome itself is as much of a sterile environment as you can get outside of a lab. And absolutely no diss to any trackies listening there. But on a different note, it is interesting. It was observed in the study that field-based tests often yield bigger numbers than similar lab-based tests. And I've known this anecdotally for a long time. And Gonzalez Haro found that the velodrome produced for map testing a 15% higher map than in the lab. That, to me, is a dangerous gap. It's a big gap, and especially if you're setting zones. So I asked Rick if he has had any experience with this and his athletes. Do you know what? I I think the people that I've tested only outdoors have never done it indoors, and the people that I test indoors, I never get them to do it outdoors. I always tend to think that that map testing is best done indoors, but there are a, a small group of people that I work with for one reason or another who can't do their map testing indoors. Either they, they don't have a turbo trainer because they live in a in a temperate climate all year round and they have no need for one or, or that they, they perform so badly on an indoor trainer that it's better to try and make a uh, make some sort of outdoor test. And, and so I, I've never compared that actually. That's quite an interesting idea. All right, so no clues from Rick. My advice in this situation, I say try both a few times, testing indoors and testing outdoors, and stick to the place that you get the best results from. You don't want to have that lingering feeling of not doing your best. And and without doubt, the single vast majority of people, maybe 99% of people who do a map test, about two or three minutes after the test finish, will go, do you know what, I could have actually gone harder if you'd have shouted. And... A few times I said, well, okay, let's do it again and see if you can go harder. But I think I've only had one or two people ever take me up on that offer. Uh, It doesn't happen very often. Most people suddenly realise when they start pedalling again that (laughs) that it isn't going to happen. I definitely want to test groups of people from their home when the technology becomes available. I think that this level of accountability would push riders a little further than even having me in their ear. But not doing a test the best we could have done happens to the best of us. We either don't get the best out of ourselves or we fail to test altogether. And I have a fairly high failure rate with 20-minute all-out FTP tests. So I was curious if Rick had experienced a higher rate of success with map testing. Yeah, I, I think there's a hardcore of people within the UK that I coach 
and a lot of them do time trialing. Time trialing is really popular in, in the UK. And, and so we have 10-mile time trials, which is about 16 kilometers, and that takes about 20 minutes. So the people that do those sorts of time trials on a regular basis have a really good idea of pacing themselves. Uh, and you know, I, I find that um, the 20-minute to map ratio, it's very easy to, to find that most people fit within a very tight range. In other words, they pace themselves and everyone falls at roughly a percentage of map that's quite close to each other. Say between about 75 and 80, 81% of map most people fall at for a 20-minute all-out test. That said, there's a lot of people in the UK who don't time trial or try to avoid it or and in other places around the world. And you'll sometimes get people to do a 20-minute test. I still have people do 20-minute tests as well as the map testing, and they'll do a 20-minute test, and you'll get some people who will pace it quite well, and you'll get other people. They'll start off at, at one power, and five minutes later, that they're struggling 100 watts below what they started out, thinking it's the end of the world and they want to die. Uh, and you think, yeah, I really need to do another 20-minute another test when you've done this one in about a week's time with much better pacing because you've just gone way too hard, whether it's a bravado thing or people just have no idea how to pace in some instances, it's difficult to say. So for the first-time tester, map testing seems to be a better choice. I think it's really good because, as I mentioned before, it's really good. You've got something to pace yourself and you just keep going until you can't do any more. It doesn't really matter what the end result of that is or your map. You've got something to pace you there and you can't go too hard. You can't go too easy. You always need to be picking it up and just keeping it spot on. Much better in terms of pacing if people have never done a time trial or, or, or they're a uh, perhaps a very intermittent style of rider rather than someone who can just bang it out like a quality diesel. As we know, though, testing is only the start of the process. Next up comes setting training zones. And I'm not sure what zones you actually use, but the most common zones around today are Andy Coggins' training levels. Rick actually uses his own zones, though, and has done so for a long time, which I'll share a picture of on the episode page, but I wanted to get the story behind them. Basically, I, I had all this map data that I'd collected from, I think I started collecting map data in about 1993, and I had it from a, a wide variety of people, from people who would be national-level cyclists, world-class cyclists, uh, and just average racing cyclists such as myself. And I, I had this big database, and I thought, when power meters started to become commercially available back in about 98, I thought there must be a way of actually um, setting training zones to give people some sort of intensity guideline based on power rather than heart rate. And at this point, Andy Coggan hadn't uh, published his, his FTP zones. And, and so I, I sat down and came up with the zones, which, as you say, are a completely different set of percentages to uh, to Andy's. And, yeah, I thought, yeah, th- th- these seem to work for a wide range of people. And what was interesting, when Andy then published his FTP zones, or training levels as he calls them, uh, th- th- they married up really, really well uh, with our map levels for the vast majority of people. So although they're, they're taking off a different number, uh, FTP being roughly 60 minutes of, of, of all-out effort versus our approximately 15 minutes map test, 
the, the zones were roughly about the same for the vast majority of people. It was re really interesting to see, and consequently, no, m my zones haven't been modified since I developed them in 98 or 97, whenever it was. Being around for a long time is a good sign that Rick got it right from the start. Yeah, I mean, it, they, they, they seem to work, and uh, they seem to be the right level. Uh, they match up very well with Andy's for the vast majority of people, give or take a couple of watts here or there. But if you know, if you get someone who does a, a threshold test using a 60 or a 20 minute effort and you find their thresholds about 300 watts and you get their zones, and, you, and you'll find that if they have to do a map test, that their, their map will be about 400 watts and, and give or take a few watts here or there. The zones and the levels between mine and Andy's are, are going to be very, very similar. Back on the, the early on on the wattage list, after Andy published his um, uh, his training zones, I think that there must have been a discussion about the two training zones, and uh, and we compared quite a few people, and yeah, they seem really similar for the vast majority of people. There are the odd outlier where some people find that FTP testing doesn't really work for them; their training zones come out too low, and some people find that that map testing is too much for them, and. Yeah, I mean, we, we use different zones for those people. I was curious about what if you've done a map test and you wanted to use Coggins training levels or vice versa. Are they interchangeable? Our zone four and our zone five is, is roughly our where our threshold is going to be in our zones. You know, it'll either be somewhere in zone four or somewhere in zone five, depending on the person. And if you know that, you can then use it to work out roughly where uh, your threshold is and then based on map, and then use Andy's zones, or if you've just done a 20-minute test or an hour test, you could multiply the number up, add a bit on, and you then use a map test and uh, all the map zones. I mean, it's, it wouldn't be perfect. I, I think the best idea is if you use a 20-minute or a 60-minute test, you use Andy's zones, and if you do a map test, you use our zones. But I, I guess you could, you could calculate it and work it out. It doesn't seem too difficult to do that, but there is some discussion around doing both an FTP test and a map test. So while we have discussed the pros of doing a map test versus an FTP test, there must be an advantage to doing both. But why would someone want to put themselves through all of this testing and pain? It's a bit like a belt and braces approach, really. Um, yeah, we get the vast majority of people to do both a map test and some sort of time trial test. So either a 16K time trial or a 20-minute all-out effort. And what you can then do is then compare, is the 20-minute test round about 75% of map? If it's significantly different to 75%, say 65% it came out at, we either think that the person hadn't done their 20-minute test very well or, or that they were a very large anaerobic monster and the map zones aren't going to work. That doesn't happen very often, though. It's usually either a case of you've started way too hard in the 20-minute test and then gone completely to pieces. Or conversely, if, it's, if they score much above 80%, you tend to think that they didn't really do a very good map test. Maybe we need to redo another one and really shout at them in the last couple of minutes to get it all out. Because it can be quite difficult in, in those last couple of minutes to get it all out if you've never done a map test before. Uh, and, and so it's a good check for people. Additionally, uh, as well as it being a check, 
uh, we can also use it to say, well, if this person comes out for their 20-minute test at, say, 72% of their MAP score, and they've done a good MAP and a good 20-minute test, that tells us a little bit about what sort of training they might need versus if they came out at, say, 80% of their MAP, uh, where they might need a different set of training to improve. The ratio that Rick is talking about here is the FTP to MAP ratio. It does come up on a lot of forums and in a lot of coffee shops, and coaches and self-coached athletes use it to gauge what to work on next. If you think about VO2 as a measure of oxygen utilization and FTP as a measure of time trial or 60-minute power, you can use MAP as a proxy for your aerobic ceiling, like how 5-minute power is sometimes used for the same thing, which gives clues about whether you need to work on lifting your ceiling or you can just continue to work on your FTP floor. Yeah, exactly. What you find is if someone's done a good 20-minute test and a good MAP test and they're 20-minute test has come out at, say, 80 or 81% of MAP, you, you pretty much know that they're not going to be able to improve that ratio very much. That's pretty much about it for the vast majority of people. So at that point, if they want to improve, you have to think about other things, and that would be increasing VO2 max or their MAP score uh, to essentially create more headroom for them to move into with their with their threshold. It's not so straightforward though. If you want to work out your ratio, you need to test and have MAP and FTP values that are recent and derived from a reliable protocol. MAP is easy since the protocol is well defined and I've listed them all out here, but FTP needs a little more care to get right. Also, the relationship between MAP and FTP changes depending on where you are in training and the composition of your training. So as we get fitter, the rate of improvement in MAP and FTP can differ, and sometimes one can stall while the other one moves. So that's it for MAP testing. I will wrap up in just a moment, but first I want to give some props to Rick for coming on the show. He has been at this game for a long time and he's made a lot of valuable contributions to the sport and coaching. So thank you very, very much, Rick. And this is where you can find him to ask any further questions about MAP or anything else coaching. RSTsport.com. And if they want to send me an email, uh, that's also good. Always happy to answer questions about MAP testing and what have you. And, uh, as long as it's not too difficult. <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up here by throwing a spanner in the works. There is actually a way to avoid testing MAP altogether. I came across a study published this year, 2014, called Determination of Maximal Aerobic Power on the Field in Cycling. It's by Julian Pino and Frederick Grapp. And to quote the study, there is no common procedure that would determine the MAP since it is dependent on the test protocol in lab and field. The purpose of this study was to propose a methodology from field data to determine both a field map, the time that a map, and the time that map can be sustained. 28 cyclists were trained and raced with mobile power racing devices fixed to their bikes during two consecutive seasons. So that's a lot of data there. The record power profile of each cyclist was determined from the maximal power output realized by cyclists on different durations between one second and four hours. The method of map determination was to define the upper limit of the aerobic metabolism from the relationship between the record power from three minutes to four hours and the logarithm of time. The most important finding from this study is the possible determination of map and the time that map can be sustained on field from the record power profile. 
Several practical applications on this field method may be relevant and sustainable for coaches in the training monitoring of their cyclists. Super exciting stuff to even dream about avoiding the map test, even if you haven't even done one yet. I'm sure that every cyclist is thinking how great this would be, and it would be great to see how this evolves and whether there is some practical application that we can plug our power numbers into and we can get that result without testing. Because no testing ever, it sounds like pure heaven to me. All right, let's get to the tech hacks and product section. And this week, Garmin announces Vector S. Things in the power meter world are really, really starting to heat up. The biggest announcement for current Vector owners, though, is Cycling Dynamics. I'm not going to go into the Vector S. Let's just say it's a $800 one-sided power meter splitting the Garmin Vector in half, cutting the cost to not exactly half, and then letting it out on the masses. You do get two pedals, but it's one pod and one axle full of all the goodies that give you the data. Is this a genuine competitor for stages? I would have to say yes for a whole bunch of reasons, but I'm not going to delve into that because it's been reported on by every single bike news outlet out there. The other announcement, which was really exciting for current Vector owners, is Cycling Dynamics. It's some new metrics, including standing seated, which is exactly what it says it is. It tells you how long you've been standing or sitting for a ride, as well as on the ride where you did it for a map, which is great for coaching purposes. Power phase, it tells you where you're generating the most power in your pedal stroke. It's great for torque workouts and fine-tuning your pedaling stroke. And platform center offset, which is most useful for bike fit above everything else. It determines when a rider is offset from the center of their pedals. Those are the things I'm excited about. I don't know where they're going to show up. It's assumed they're going to be in Garmin head units and on Garmin Connect. But hopefully the data is available to be used by third-party apps. So I will be calling David from Cycling Analytics to get him on this so he can throw it in there and we can all be using it. By the way, we are moving into convention season with Eurobike and Interbike, and I'm expecting a flurry of new rad gear, just like every single year, especially power meter stuff, but anything that's going to progress cycling training gets me excited. And if you are a bike tech geek like me, then you know this time of year very well. I personally won't be reporting on any of these new things unless there is any thing that is so outstanding i'll have to dig into it on the show and now that quote from the top of the show it's matt harley goss 2014 is his contract year we're heading to the back end of the year and so far not much pointy action for goss and i'm not sure actually what his future holds i don't know whether he has a place on orica green edge with matthews crushing this year even after a few major setbacks but should goss himself take a role change and a pay cut to stay with orica green edge or should he switch back to a classics focus with another team maybe a smaller or a pro conti team either way Goss, good luck with the negotiations. You talk about doing well if you ride with passion. I hope you haven't lost that passion and you come back next year firing with a new attitude, a new role, and some more 
wins. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash map, M A P, to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on my coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 